Today, uh, we're going to be reading from 2 Samuel 22 and 23, and it will be the very last sermon in a series that has taken us three years to get through. I started this series um, a few months after my wife and I adopted our girls. This has taken up more than half of the years that I've been a pastor here. And I was reflecting on that this week. And, you know, I am a little sad. Brian Walker has told me a couple times preaching through, finishing preaching through a book is like saying goodbye to an old friend. I feel that. Um, But also mostly what I feel is gratitude. The Lord has been so kind to us, right? We've just, the Bible is beautiful. And I don't think we even often wrap our our mind around the tremendous privilege to be able to sit and gaze upon the beauty of Christ and his word, right? So I want to first just pray. I want to thank God for all the good things he's done for us and ask him to continue to do those good things. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for articulating in so many brilliant ways that our only hope is in Jesus, the King. Lord, teach us, as you have taught us, to see in your scriptures the bright hope of Christ's coming kingdom. Lord, teach us how to read and understand your words and your promises. And Lord, thank you for doing this so faithfully. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to read the last words of David. These are, I think, um, these words can be summarized as, I think, the the hope-filled, Christ-exalting, prophetic grand finale of Samuel. Now, you remember the Samuel is one book, not two. We split it artificially. And so everything that we've been reading has been building to this moment. And you might have your Bibles open and you might think, wait, hang on, because this is not the last chapter. And so, like, what are you saying? That that the grand finale is two chapters before the end of the book? Yes, I'm saying that. Uh, You've probably heard this now three times if you've been uh, watching or attending regularly. But let me just explain this one more time. Sometimes the Bible works like a treasure map. What I mean is sometimes X marks the spot. This is a literary tool known as chiasm or chiastic structures. And basically authors can structure their narrative to draw over the course of chapters or even books to draw a big X on the meaning of their work, right? And, and what the author of Samuel has done here is answered a lot of our questions about the nature of David's reign by drawing a big X. And for the last few weeks in this series, we've been following the X to the very center, right? X marks the spot. That's the meaning here. A lot of the questions we have about David's reign... What are we looking forward to, right? Like on some level, David was faithful and he was, and on some level he was righteous and on some level he was leading the people to, to reconciliation with their God. But on another level, he was despicable, 
And he was sinful, and he had uh, he, he he made decisions that we would rightfully condemn. And so at the very end of Samuel, you're left asking, well, what do I hope in? I know that on some level, the coming king is like David. And I know that on some level, the coming king is not like David. So, so what am I supposed to be looking forward to? And that is where this final section, this final finale of Samuel answers those questions. X marks the spot to teach you exactly what to hope in in the coming Messiah. So here is particularly interesting text because I've been arguing that the entire uh, final section of this book is structured like a chiasm. But the very center of that X, the very center of the X marks the spot is its own X marks the spot. So you're not you're not just left to try and figure out what's the meaning of this centerpiece uh, poem. You're actually told exactly within the poem what is the meaning of this poem, which teaches you what the meaning of this structure is. Right. And so the author leaves nothing Uh, uh, no room to guess. The author of Samuel is teaching us exactly what to hope in, exactly what kind of Messiah to look forward to. Who is our king and how is he like David? All of those questions are answered in this poem. So I want to, uh, let's go to the next slide. I'm going to review very quickly the structure of this chiasm, which we've been reviewing for several weeks. We have seen on some level that David is a priest on behalf of the people. Now, he didn't fill this role formally, but what he did do on several occasions that are marked at the very tip of this X, on several occasions we're told about how David um, was faced with the wrath of God. And, and, And when faced with the wrath of God that was about to unfold on the people of God, He operated as a priest. He operated to make atonement on behalf of the people. And so the first thing we're taught about specifically what to hope in in the coming Messiah is we're taught that he will be an atoning priest that will reconcile the people of God to the to the to the God of justice. Right. He will do the atoning work to reconcile God and his people, right? And that's the first layer of this chiasm. The second layer is this brilliant picture of a king who's leading a mighty redeemed people. And we see on several occasions how David led armies, armies that are themselves led by these brilliant uh, testimonies of redemption. The mighty men are noteworthy, not only because they're mighty, but because they once were not, right? The mighty men were once broken and desperate, socially outcast and indebted. And they rushed to David, having seen his example and having seen his beautiful and brilliant representation of his people. When he slayed the great enemy of Israel, they saw this and they ran to him. And for the next 40 years, they were shaped and molded into mighty men who fought on behalf of the kingdom. And that's the second layer of what we were taught to look forward to. We're taught to look forward to not only a God who who sends a king to reconcile a just God with an unjust people, right? But we're also taught to hope in a king who leads them from a state of indebtedness and brokenness 
to a state of mighty redeemed, right? The, the mighty warriors for the kingdom, right? So we're getting further and further uh, a, a comprehension of what kind of king we are to look forward to. And that's where we get to this poem. I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and spoilers reveal the point of this poem. This poem is structured itself like a chiasm. On both the introduction and the exit, you have this prophetic voice leading the praise of God. Why is he praising God? Because he himself has been delivered from death. And what is the basis of his deliverance from death? It is because he is righteous. The righteousness of the king who was delivered from death and who leads the people of God into praise is the point of this poem. And so we get this brilliant X marks the spot, and right at the center of the X is a righteous king who leads his people prophetically into praise. And he is a prophet and a, and a king and a priest, and he reconciles his people with his God, right? That's the king we're looking forward to. So our job today is to slowly and carefully read through this poem and see all the magnificent display of the prophetic gaze on the coming king and what he is like. And then we're going to ask some questions about what that means for us. Okay? So, I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. Hold up your Bibles when you're there. Awesome. Awesome. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my Salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. We, we see here that the king is worship leader. Listen to his descriptions of the Lord here. The Lord is my rock. And my fortress, my deliverer, my stronghold, my savior. Right? So the king here, driven by the spirit, is rallying the praise of his people. This is not a private worship ceremony. This this is the worship of the king that is then broadcast to the people. And the people join alongside to worship God. Why? Because he has done all of these good things. Let's go to the next slide, please. He's done all, all of these good things. He is rock and fortress and deliverer and stronghold and shield and savior. Now, what's important to note here is that you are not left to just assume that he is all these things just arbitrarily. This is not some philosopher sitting in a room and uh, deciding what the characteristics of God are and how they're worthy to be praised. It's all driven by a single moment of rescue, right? You see this at the very last verse of this section. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised 
And I am saved from my enemies. So you're, asked to, you're, you're, you're left to ask, why? why are you worshiping God? Why, why is he? What do, you, what do you mean when you say he's your rock and your fortress and your deliverer and your stronghold and your shield and your savior? What are you, what are you talking about? And then, the, then this, the, this poem pivots into an explanation of why. Why am I saying all these things? All right, keep reading. We're going to start in verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shale. Shale is the place of the dead. Shale is the grave. The cords of the grave entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry came to my to his ears. The king is praising God because he's risen from the grave. He's risen from the grave. Listen to his words. He says, I was encompassed by the waves of death. I was assailed by the torrents, wave upon wave of destruction. I was entangled in the cords of the grave. And I was confronted by the snares of death. Four different ways to say, I was dead. And God took me from the grave. I'll keep reading. Verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heaven trembled and quaked because God was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devoured fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him. His canopy... Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of his breath. He sent me from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into the broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So you get this dramatic display of the Lord's rescue, right? And David himself is remembering instances of Rescue, surrounded by an enemy, and the Lord worked and moved to rescue him. It says, the earth shook. <laughs> right? Like, I love this passage because it's like, you know, all these movies are trying to do what this is, right? When you've got like the final dramatic rescue, you've got all of a sudden the ground is shaking and the clouds parted. <sighs> this is. A taste of what God's rescue is like. The earth shook. The Lord 
thundered from heaven. He drew me out of the waters. The waters represent death. The waters represent an impossible doom. He drew me out of the waters. He rescued me from my enemies. And he delighted in me. And again, you're left to ask why. So you're praising God because he's all these things. And very clearly, he has been all these things because he delights in you. Why? What makes you distinct from anyone else? Why did God act? Why did God deliver? What was the reason for God's dramatic, dramatic act of rescue? All right, keep reading. Verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. I want to read that one more time. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness, the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me. And from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him. And I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness, my cleanness in His sight. Why did God act? Because the King is righteous. God rescued me because I am righteous, because my hands are clean, because I have kept the law, because I was blameless before God, because I am righteous. What? This is David speaking. We're going to get to that later. We're here. We're at the center of the X, guys. We'll, we'll circle back and we'll reflect on this, but right at the center of the X, all of God's establishment of his kingdom through his king are based upon the king's righteousness. What? Okay. You should feel that tension. It's normal. Okay. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop on reflecting on his own rescue, right? Keep reading. Verse 32. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people. You save a humble people. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. By you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a what? He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Now you might be tempted to see this as a continued explanation of what, is it, what does David mean when he's talking about himself being righteous. But I don't think that's what's going on in the text because you have a whole lot of passive verbs. Now look at this. With the purified, the purified, you show yourself, you deal purely. And listen to this. 
He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So the king is not just praising God by virtue of God's rescue of the king from death. The king is praising God by virtue of God's rescue of the the king's people. Right? Not only is the king rescued because of his righteousness, but we are rescued because of the king's righteousness. We have traveled all the way to the centerpiece of the poem, and you're going to start seeing repetition here as we walk back out. You're going to start seeing repeated themes. All right, let's read verse 32. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hand for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked But there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but He did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The God of Israel has delivered the king by moving himself in thunder, right? He thundered. The the ground shook. He he emerged. He rode the winds to rescue the king. But here we see that same rescue, and it's the king himself who's doing it, right? The king himself is leading the armies, and he's crushing his enemies, fine as dust. He defeats the armies. He destroys his enemies. Then we see this kingdom of peace start to unfold. You see these allusions to a kingdom established. Oh, and my favorite part. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as what? The head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me as soon as they heard me. They obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Praise God, I lost heart and came trembling out of mine. This is a picture of a kingdom established and a king sitting on his throne. Not only is he king of Israel, but he's king of the nations. And as soon as the nations see him and hear him, they start to obey him. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Read Acts. I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. This is David speaking. 
<laughs> was David the king of the nations? This tension is developing, right? You see David referencing moments in his own life. You see him reflecting upon the Lord's deliverance. But this cannot be true of him. Not all of it anyways. So what's going on? Let the tension build. That tension is on purpose. Let the tension build. And then again, the king leading his people in worship. Start in verse 47. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, it took us three years to get through this book, but maybe if it hadn't, you would remember that this is basically an allusion to Hannah's song at the very, very beginning. 1 Samuel 2. Listen to this. You don't have to turn there. 1 Samuel 2. But you can if you want. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Listen to that. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. What did Samuel just do? He just said, I've only ever been talking about one thing. From the beginning to the end, I've only ever been talking about one thing. And what is that thing? What is that thing? Next slide. You should have tripped up on the righteousness section. And I'm not just saying, well, remember when David did these things, because the author doesn't even let you finish this section without reminding you that David has failed the people of God and he has broken the covenant. Look at this, 23 verse 39. Remember last week, I didn't touch on this last week. Remember last week we we dealt with the, the mighty men and there's this glorious list of all of these brilliant warriors, right? So beautiful. Well, let me read to you how this list ends. Zelik the Ammonite, Nariah Birath, the armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite. 37 in all. Do you believe that that was an accident? Ask yourselves questions like this when you're reading the scriptures. Was it an accident that Uriah was the very last name mentioned? Sean Moore, he texted me about this like, what, two months ago or something like that. I was just reading through this passage. That's harsh. I can't remember your words exactly, but something like that. Wow. Uriah. You remember? Uriah. David stole his wife. While he was out fighting to establish the kingdom, David took his wife and she became pregnant. And so David panicked. He tried manipulating the situation, but he failed, so he just killed one of his best friends. That's that's there on purpose. So that you'll remember 
David's not the righteous one we're talking about. Are you, com- are you not compelled by this? Keep reading. One verse later. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. No, oh, David's relatively passive here. Maybe this is not a big deal. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, what? What did he say? I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. For I have done very foolishly. So David wasn't righteous. But this entire poem pivots on the righteousness of of a king. This song is not about David. Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 are not songs about David. This is a good reason to not stop reading. <laughs> we, I know we're busy. Like the, I, I, I grew up with these like discipleship books that told you like read one chapter at a time or like 14 verses at a time or whatever. Um, uh, But when you come to moments of tension like this, one of the worst things you can do is just say, well, it'll resolve itself eventually. Come back to this tomorrow. No, you, you have tension when you're reading this poetry. You keep reading because you keep reading and all the answers are there. Okay. Second Samuel 23. Now these are the last words of David. Now these are the last words of David. Here's Perk, right? What? This is, this is an important moment. The last words of David. And then how is he described? The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The oracle of David. The oracle of the son of Jesse. Well, you know what that means? That means everything you're about to read is a prophecy of something to come. The spirit-given prophecy of something to come. And listen to his words. Verse 2. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Imagine David on his deathbed and everyone around him sees something's happening. The Spirit is working in him. He has something important to say. And this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This is not a principle. This is a prophecy. You know that because the author has made it clear. This is an oracle. This is looking forward to something to come. This is not a general proverb on how righteous kings help their people be happy. Right? 
The Spirit prophesies, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has decreed. This is coming. I'm telling you, I'm telling you about something that's coming. What is coming? A just, righteous king is coming. And he will rule justly. And he will rule in the fear of God. And he will rise like the dawn. And his reign will bless the earth like the rains. Okay, keep reading. Verse 5. For does not my house, my house, stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? My house. This this is not David talking about his physical dwelling place. This is David talking about his line. And this is David referencing God's promise to someday establish a king in the line of David who will rescue God's people. He says, who is this just king I speak of whose reign will rise like the dawn? Who is he? A son of David. A son of David is coming. Why? Because God is faithful and He's chosen my house and His choice is everlasting and God will fulfill His promise. And then lastly, but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away for they cannot be taken in the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear and they are utterly consumed with fire. What will this just and righteous king do after he's established his kingdom of peace? And reconciliation. He will end wickedness forever. You can't turn on the news and not long for the end of wickedness forever. Don't miss the illusion here. Psalm 2, man. Is that annoying? Sorry. Oh gosh, I skipped Psalms. Guys, I know where the Bible. I know how the Bible's going. Don't worry about it. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify him in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And one of the most Christ-exalting, messianic, explicitly clear messianic texts in the Bible. Listen, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. What will he do? He will break them with a rod of what? Iron? Is that a coincidence? No. These are songs about the coming Messiah who will rescue his people because of his righteousness and he will establish a coming kingdom that will last forever and he will end wickedness forever with a rod of iron. So what's the point? What's the point? I've been telling you, like, X marks the spot the whole time. Like, oh, we're going to get to the point. I even told you the first week, if you remember, I'm not going to tell you what the point is because it's so good. 
keep you hanging. What's the point? There is a priest and a king and a prophet coming. He will lead the people of God in praise. And he himself will be delivered from death by virtue of his righteousness. And his people themselves will be delivered from death. And they too, with him in mighty chorus forever and ever, will praise God, led by the prophet, priest, and king. That's what Samuel means. The promised son of David is coming. He will be a better priest than David, a better king than David, a better prophet than David. He will defeat death because he is righteous. And he will rise like the dawn on a purified people of God. And he will establish a kingdom of peace. And he will lead his people in praise. The point, what you're supposed to walk away with and you spend time reading Samuel, what's the point of Samuel? What's the meaning of Samuel? The righteous son of David is our only hope. The righteous son of David is our only hope. That's the point of Samuel. Spoilers, that's the point of the whole scriptures. The righteous son of David is the only hope of Israel. And he's the only hope of the nations. And he is your only hope. You, particularly, individually, Do you long for the end of wickedness, the end of suffering, the end of division? Do you long for unity? Do you long for restoration? Do you long for reconciliation and wholeness and healing? It's been a hard year. I don't turn on the news anymore. Everything's so broken. Wickedness abounds. Division abounds. Suffering abounds. I long for unity and restoration and reconciliation and wholeness and healing. Do you long to watch for the dawn of King Jesus? He is our only hope. How does this apply right now? Gosh, there's a million different ways this applies right now. Here's a few. Are you politically frustrated? Good. You should be. Your hope is not in parties or legislative agendas or in politicians or administrations. Your hope is not in conservatives or liberals or libertarians. It's not even in democracy. Certainly not in socialism. All these things promise to give you what you really long for, but they can't. They can't get you what you're looking for. None of them. Because when you see yourself longing, you're truly longing for the reign of the righteous son of David. How do you respond to that longing? You plead, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Do you long for racial reconciliation? Good. Your hope is not in legislative programs or reparations or social justice or Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter. Whatever is your take on this particular issue in this particular culture. 
All of these camps, all of these ideologies are promising you something they cannot deliver. The Christian response to racial division is to plead for the coming Lord Jesus. It's only one instance in all of human history where every tribe and tongue and nation join hands and and worship alongside of one another. And that hasn't happened yet. It's coming, though. Plead for his return. Do you long for justice? Good. Good. But your hope is not in systemic changes or oversight committees or more funding for police or less funding for police or more laws or less laws or stricter enforcement or lighter enforcement or more training. You turn on the news, all you hear are promises. They're lies. There's so many lies. But what you long for can only be delivered by the righteous son of David. Yes, you should have a voice in these conversations. This is not me saying that we should be uh, uh, this ridiculous phrase. I don't even know how it's even humanly possible. But people say you're too heavenly minded to be earthly good. That's that's crazy. You can't be too heavenly minded. But I'm not saying pull yourself from these conversations. But what I am saying is that your message should be, above all, after all the sentences and conversations and dialogues and debates, you say, maybe we will do this and maybe it will work, but but only for a moment. Because all of this is a band-aid on a bullet wound that only Jesus can heal. Our hope is in the righteous son of David. Guys, you can come forward if you're... We're going to sing a song together. And I want to uh, pray for us. Oh, God. How quickly and easily we are enticed by the promises of lesser kings. Sometimes we truly believe that life will indeed be better if we do this or if we enact these changes or if we shift parties or change directions. Maybe if we all read this book or maybe if we all understood these things, Lord, we are so easily distracted when truly you are our only hope. Thank you for sending your son. We may only pray and plead for open eyes and softened hearts and plead for renewed hope and renewed minds. We can only plead for those things because the righteous son of David has already vanquished our sin. He's born our sin and he's, and he's reconciled us to you so we can boldly approach 
in his name, wearing his righteousness. That's the only reason we can even ask you for these things. But Lord, we plead with you that you would keep us from distraction. Set our hope on the coming King, Jesus. May we long for his reign. May we scan the horizon for the dawn. And as we step back out into the wilderness this week, and as we see division and brokenness and hurt, may we be bastions of hope, crying out to the world that what you're truly longing for is only possible under the reign of the coming Son of David. I'm so grateful for you. In Christ's name. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.